you always hear this thing about reconciliation where uh, why don't these uh, Indians get over it? Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, you know, that's one of the get over it and move on along with your life, you know. And uh, just by what I've shared with you, like how does me and my family move forward or move in any way because of what's happened to us, you know, as a family, right? Thanks for joining us this week. We acknowledge that we are doing this work in Treaty 6 territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Dene, Soto, and other Indigenous peoples, and the homeland of the Métis. Through this work, we hope to reaffirm our treaty relationships with each other and remind ourselves to live into the treaty values of respect, friendship, and justice. Marianne Pope is a Cree mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. She is a fifth-generation survivor of Indian residential schools and was deeply involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission community gatherings held throughout the province where she worked as a mental health support person. I got to know Marianne about six years ago when we started facilitating the Kairos Blanket exercise together. I would often witness Marianne share painful experiences of residential school around a circle of learners, and I would see that their stories, that Marianne's life, was changing people's perspectives of Canada. Ben, what should people be listening for in this conversation? For sure, I have a couple things. Um, I think it's really important for people to understand that and I think what Marianne will cover a little bit is that indigenous people just can't get over reconciliation right Um, these are some very personal very real and often traumatic experiences that people have had and Marianne's story is no different and so also a content warning Um, in this episode Marianne talks explicitly about sexual abuse it is difficult to hear these stories this will be harmful for you to hear we suggest you skip this episode We invited Marianne to have a conversation with us around five questions. What is your personal understanding of reconciliation? What experiences have led you to this understanding? Why do you feel reconciliation is important? Does forgiveness have a role in reconciliation? And how would you invite people into this reconciliation journey? Let's listen to her reflections. My name is Marianne Pope, and I'm from One Arrow First Nation. 
I'm a, whether, I'm not sure if I'm a Plains Cree or a Woodland Cree, but I'm Cree and I speak Cree and I understand the language, I don't write it. And uh, I'm also a Indian residential school survivor. I attended uh, St. Michael's Residential School in Duck Lake for approximately about six years of my life. And I'm also um, about a fifth generation residential school survivor because of uh, my family uh, attended the same residential school. Duck Lake Indian Residential School. There are seven of us in my family, and um, I'm also a social worker by trade. I received my uh, Bachelor of Indian Social Work degree in 1994. I've done quite a number of situations and jobs and experiences since 1994. I'm a single parent, got three children, two girls and a boy, and I've got five grandchildren, and I'm going to be having a great grandchild here in about five months. <laughs> so I'm really excited about things. In regards to myself as an Indigenous person, I um, experienced uh, a lot of racism, discrimination uh, throughout my life. And um, because my family um, attended this residential school, um, there's been uh, a legacy of sexual and physical abuse, cultural abuse, uh, identity abuse, uh, all that, and it has been passed on through our generations. I should say, since I left the residential school till 85, I. Uh, had no real guidance from anybody. And so I pretty well lived my life. I lived a high risk lifestyle. Um, my other family members as well. <laughs> we got into the alcohol, the drugs, um, the whole street life sort of kind of a life. We sold drugs, we stole for a living. <laughs> um, we. You name it, probably we just about did it. But at the same time, we were on social assistance and uh, no education. And so we went into the life of crime and drugs. And that went on for quite a number of years. I used to shoplift for uh, 15 years about. That's how I made my living. And uh, to support my family and also to support my drug addiction. Anyways, uh, because of my lifestyle, I ended up uh, getting uh, charged for shoplifting and ended up, uh, first offense, I got um, a suspended sentence, so I didn't have to do any time. But then the next time I got caught, I, uh, I got uh, 10 days, but I probably did maybe three or four out of it. And then the following time, the la that'd be the last time, I did 30 days. And uh, that's been the extent of my uh, jail time, incarceration time. <laughs> While I was in Pine Grove for my last stint <laughs> of 30 days, I, um, and because I think it was because I wasn't 
doing any drugs. I really started feeling my feelings and I started thinking about my life for, for a change, you know. A flood of emotions came through me and I just couldn't stop crying. I just was really feeling my feelings, you know, and feeling I didn't like my life and uh, I didn't like how I was raising my children. There was neglect, uh, there was abuse, uh, you know, it was just a horrible kind of a life, you know, for them and, you know, and for us as a family. And um, I um, really wanted to change my life. I was in my cell with the door closed, locked for the night. You know, you're in this little cell and you got your bed and whatever, you know, you need there. and and. I just couldn't sleep. I was so filled with emotion and I got up from my bed and I went and uh, knelt by my bed and I started praying. And I asked God, I asked him to help me change my life for myself and for my children. I was in there for another few weeks, but I was determined to quit my drugs and my lifestyle. I wanted to live a better life. After I got out, I ended up popping the bus from PA. I got dropped off at uh, Bus Depot, and my two children were in this Christian foster in this home that uh, I used to go to that church, a Baptist church. And those, that couple had taken my my two children during the, while I was in incarcerated. So they met me at the bus, and then. Me and my children, we grabbed a bus to Duck Lake where I was staying at the time at my sister's place. And so I went there, uh, packed up what little belongings I had. I had only half a garbage bag of clothes for me and my kids. And we grabbed a bus to uh, Saskatoon. And uh, my sister-in-law was living in, in PA, um, Saskatoon at the time. And uh, I was able to stay with her and my two children. We ended up getting a place in that same area, and I started with nothing in my place, you know. No table, no chairs, no couches, no nothing. We just straight, we slept on a carpet with a blanket and pillow, and that's how it started, you know. And that's how I started changing my life. That was, would have been in 85. Well, I wanted to go to a treatment center, you know, because I knew I needed help. So uh, I went to social services um, to apply for assistance as well. And, and I asked the receptionist if I could see um, somebody that could help me get into treatment. So yeah, there's family workers here, she told me, and uh, um, we'll send one out and you could go into this room. So uh, I went into that room and so I'm sitting there and all of a sudden this guy comes walking in. Uh, about six foot six, real tall guy, eh? long hair, beard, like he looked like one of those hippies from the 60s, which he was after I found out. <laughs> I'm like, oh my, uh, this is a social worker, you know? <laughs> this kind of blew me away. Eh? He introduced himself as uh, Cam Kelly, and uh, I told him what I wanted to do, and uh he said he would be my family worker, so he started coming to see me. 
at my place and he made the arrangements for me to go to Calder Center, which used to be at St. Paul's at the old nurses station. There it was, that's where uh, I ended up going, eh, you know. After that, I finished my program and then um, I, uh, like, I was still experiencing my feelings, you know, and uh, um, I remember times, you know, doing the dishes and all of a sudden just bursting out crying and stuff and I, um, I needed help, and, I, and this family worker knew that uh, I needed help, and so um, he uh, suggested about seeing a counselor. So I said, yeah, sure, you know, I was kind of game for it. And, uh, so he ended up setting up a, a time to see, there used to be this place called McNeil Clinic on Idlewild, um, a mental health place there. Eh? So we went and saw this lady, and uh, I know there too, I was like, just, um, uh, I was just flooded with emotions, like I would just flood, you know, and just, um, and then I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to see this person. <laughs> so that was that, and then, uh, so then he, and then, I know this would have been about, uh, I would say at least a year after that I sobered up and straightened out. Um, he started, uh, that didn't work out, and then, so then he suggested this other place that, and by that time I had trusted him enough to, uh, disclose my, uh, abuse, you know, that had happened, um, at home and at, uh, the residence, you know, and other situations, yeah, and, um, so he said that these people, uh, were doing really good work in that field, eh? and so he he said he would get in touch with them and that we could uh, maybe I could start seeing them and social services would pay for me to see a, a therapist, eh? mental health therapist. So yeah, we ended up uh, he ended up making the arrangements and I went and met up uh, um, the therapist uh, who was a male therapist and. Um, uh, his name was Ed Risling from Prairie Therapist and Trainers. And I started seeing him on a regular basis, figuring that this should help somewhere along the way, you know, kind of, that was the way my thinking was, eh, you know, and, and I kind of had this think about uh, that uh, this person would, uh, would do the work for me. <laughs> and I would just kind of, you know, once it's done, I can go my merry way and live happily ever after, so to speak. And that was my crazy thinking, eh, or whatever thinking that I had. And I, because that was the way that I understood it, you know, uh, nobody, uh, this is a place that I've never been, you know, and my family never went to counseling, you know, like this was like I was going on uncharted territory here. Eh? And so, um, yeah, I ended up seeing that therapist for 14 years off and on. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was quite the experience. Uh, I don't know if I... I got taught about in, inner child work. We I did a lot of inner child work. Uh, did other um, therapies. Um, uh, we used that uh, Gestalt therapy. That was quite... I found that very uh, powerful. For me, you know, like uh, I'd be sure telling off people at this invisible chair across from me. 
<laughs> and uh, so that, that actually helped, you know. During that time, seeing this therapist, I uh, started going back to school and I uh, I started off doing 5 to 10 at SIS uh, downtown on 4th Ave and 12 there, but I didn't finish my 11 and 12. I uh, um, was having too much difficulty with looking after three children, you know, so I, uh, I got a suggestion from one of my cousins to take my GD12 and then do that and then go into the social work program. So I ended up going to uh, Saskatchewan Indian Federated College for four years, you know, and uh, I got my social work degree, uh, first certificate, and then, then my uh, Bachelor of Indian Social Work, I got it in 94, right in that same building, eh, you know. Um, but during that time, I uh, the last, the third and fourth year, I started experiencing um, anxiety and not knowing what was wrong with me or I thought it w would have been maybe my past coming up or surfacing, you know, and um, because I was doing this therapy work, I could say there would have been about three or four major incidents that took place in my life, you know, um, especially with uh, sexual abuse, you know, um, my, the perpetrators of my abuse. Um, was my father and my grandfather. Uh, they had attended the same residential school and um, I remember my grandfather um, uh, telling us stories about residential school about, um, you know, he'd tell stuff about what he used to do there, like he used, he used to be a farmhand eh? and uh, uh, like, and then how he, um, ended up going to school like two times over, you know, like uh, he'd go up to grade four and uh, he'd finish that and he'd have to go start back from grade one to grade four again, and, like he had done that. But most of the time, he all he did was uh, farm work, you know, like looked after the farm. Eh? I remember him saying to us, uh, you know, um, that uh, he used to be bothered by the priests. But, you know, when you're a little kid, you know, like you don't really... Uh, well, I would say bothered would be like pushing him or bugging him or something, you know, like you don't really grasp it at the time, right? And uh, it wasn't until later on in my healing and stuff that I figured out what bothering meant, you know? Uh, so that was his way of saying that things that happened to him in residential school. Eh? And then the same thing with my father, you know, like uh, when he would... Um, bring stuff up, you know, sometimes he'd drink, bring up stuff when he was drinking, eh, you know, and him too, he'd say that the priest bothered him, you know, and uh, so, and then, so what happened was, uh, they were, had, had been sexually abused by priests, uh, but then my grandfather was sexually abusing his sons and daughters as well, so it got passed on, right, you know, and so, like, uh, with me, I uh, was uh, sexually abused by my grandfather and my father at a young age. Uh, my grandfather started very young, uh, when I was three years old, and it continued till I was 14. And uh, my father, um, he uh, violently raped me when I was 10 years old. And uh, there was about three incidents that took place that I can remember, you know. 
and I, uh, I was never treated for it. I suffered in pain over it. When I was in a residential school, um, between six to 10 years old, um, I'll just give you a little uh, scenario there of what, 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 what we were up against in that residential school that we didn't know, right? Anyway, so this is just one incident. There's so many others there. Um, on Saturday mornings, uh, the nuns used to uh, make us all stand in a row, us little girls, eh, you know, and uh, and we used to have uh, asked to do extra chores, you know, like if we wanted to earn some uh, treats, you know. So we were asked uh, if we wanted to, you know, and uh, and uh, <laughs> this is funny because. Uh, the treats that we got that we really liked it or whatever was we used to get a little uh, pile of uh, Kool-Aid Kool-Aid mix that was with sugar and you know we used to lick it that was our treat you know <laughs> you know and I was like what a treat eh? you know <laughs> but uh, um, but you know when you don't have no sweets or nothing or and there's a way you know like so you know you do whatever right so they used to assign us uh, chores to do it. The nun asked me to uh, go and clean the priest's uh, office upstairs, and uh, so I went up there with my uh, um, broom and uh, that a duster thingy there and um, uh, a mop and pail and you know, just uh, rags and stuff like that. Eh? So I took it in and I opened the door and she kind of told me what I needed to do to wipe around and uh, sweep and mop the floor and, you know, and throw out the garbage kind of a thing, you know, like, you know, it was about the size, maybe about this size, maybe a little bit bigger than this. So, so I'm um, cleaning, you know, sweeping and dusting and, you know, and, and then that uh, priest comes in, you know, comes in, but the door is open, right? So he comes in and, uh, oh, he says, you're uh, cleaning my office? I said, yeah, Sister Rosangeline told me to come and clean your office. And, oh, okay. So and he just kind of stood there and I was still kept on doing what I was doing, eh? And, and not thinking of anything, right? You know, or just, just cleaning and whatnot. And, and all of a sudden he comes up behind me and grabs me. And, um, uh, and I'm like, I'm kind of going like, like, like what, you know, like what, you know? And then uh, he said, uh, come and sit on the desk here, you know? Cause he had a kind of a big desk. There was a desk there and then his chair and there's these uh, cupboards, uh, tall kind of bookshelves and there's the window over there and, and uh, yeah he just put me on uh, on a desk because I was small you know and light and he just picked me up and and then uh, um, then he abused me there you know like some parts of it I remember and some I don't you know like uh, not sure uh, but I remember feeling pain I don't even know how long it happened or whatever, you know, I just, yeah, after it, it was done or whatever, um, I just got up and 
I was just shaking and, um, and he told me not to tell anybody, like to just, like, don't tell anybody, you know, and then I, um, I left, you know, I took the mop and pail and whatnot and I didn't even finish, I didn't even finish doing what I was supposed to have done, you know, and, um, I wanted to tell somebody, you know, but I wasn't sure who I should tell or I, I felt bad for what happened. You know, like I felt bad because I thought it was, it's like it was me that did that, you know, that was that feeling that I had, eh, you know, and I didn't say anything to anybody. I, I just kept it in, you know, but I remember thinking, uh, I remember looking at these nuns and thinking, um, like thinking, should I tell that one? Should I tell that one? You know, like that kind of a thing. You know, I was kind of trying to figure out whether, what I should do about this, you know, what happened to me, eh? And, um, but it's like I couldn't find anybody, you know, I couldn't find anybody to, that I could, you know, tell to, you know, and I didn't know, uh, I think what was worrying me too was that, like, I remember thinking that it might uh, it might backfire on me, and they'll blame me, and I was scared of that too, you know. Like, what if I did say something, and that priest uh, will probably uh, deny it, and then I'll uh, it'll go on me, you know, kind of a thing. I was kind of thinking about that too a little bit, you know. Just but like I think I was more like because I was little, and I didn't really know what I should do with this, so. And I couldn't seem to do anything with it, so I, I just had to just leave it, eh, you know, leave it, leave it. I guess I'm trying to uh, uh, let whoever know that uh, they need to know where this is all coming from, you know, and uh, and yeah, a, a, quite a bit of it is very detailed and you know and uh, uh, descriptive, you know. You always hear this thing about reconciliation where uh, why don't these uh, Indians get over it? You know, like, um, you know, that's one of the get over it and move on along with your life, you know. And uh, just by what I've shared with you, like, how does me and my family move forward or move in any way because of what's happened to us, you know, as a family, right? Well, in regards to uh, what does reconciliation uh, look to me as an indi Indigenous person uh, that is a fifth-generation residential school survivor, um, what it means to me is um, it's not me that should be reconciling with anybody or anything because what I've shared it seems to me that it's been done to me, what's been done in regards to colonization, in regards to residential schools, you know, and my life as an Indigenous person. You know, um, I don't feel like I should reconcile with the government or reconcile with uh, this uh, genocide, you know, that I've experienced in my life. Um, to me, reconciliation, um, it should be reconciled from them to me. Um, yeah, this apology is good, like, you know, from the government. Um, 
when they did that apology to me and to all uh, residential school survivors, from my opinion, when that um, apology came, my thoughts were of, uh, it seemed like it was a little too late. There's been so much in between, you know, all this time, you know. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a step, you know, uh, a step from the governments, which uh, they never did before. I've, I've really struggled with reconciliation, just, just the word itself, because of, uh, because of me being Indigenous. And depending on, say, if it's the governments that are working on reconciliation, and like, say, especially uh, JT, right? Um, <laughs> um, you know, about how his last uh, election promise was that he would, one of the most important uh, thing that he'd like to do as Prime Minister of Canada was to have a, build a better relationship with Indigenous people. There has been some reconciliation, uh, but at the same time, there's other situations that have happened that uh, contradicts what he's, um, what he has said that he would do, you know. So there's that uh, mistrust again. Well, because of the work that I did as a resolution health support worker, I uh, traveled different places uh, providing support to Indian residential school survivors at uh, national gatherings, uh, community gatherings and uh, also listening to um, the TRC commissioners whenever they talk and other keynote speakers throughout the years that uh, really uh, inspired me uh, you know that uh, the very the most the very important work that the TRC has done and I felt that I've been a, a, a little part of it you know uh, by me going to these events and being as a support worker and you know and uh, I think the TRC really brought out this reconciliation well it has that was their uh, mandate right and uh, I think too um, in regards to what experiences have led me to this understanding um, I uh, was at the truth and reconciliation closing events in 2016 was it in uh, Ottawa, I uh, was on that walk for reconciliation, uh, and uh, we walked like five kilometers. <laughs> I got a blister on my foot <laughs> because I never walked so much in my whatever. But uh, I think um, the feeling that I had as a residential school survivor and because of my family all went to residential school I felt like I was representing my family my 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 five generation family I was representing our family and I was on that walk for reconciliation for me and my family for what we experienced and um, uh, as I was walking on that walk a Caucasian lady came and walked beside me on my left side, just started walking beside me and uh, um, asked me, um, did these things really happen at residential school? And and I told her, yes, they did. I told her it. 
And I said, I'm a residential school survivor and yeah, these things did happen. And uh, she mentioned that uh, they used to live close to a residential school, her and her family. And she said they used to look at that residential school and never ever thought things like that were happening there. You know, and so she had a change of, I guess, or not a change, but just awakening or a reality, you know, that, you know, she's looking at that school in a different way now, you know. As I was walking as well, we kept on walking, and uh, on the right side, there was a big sign. It said, uh, in solidarity, and uh, there was these um, older uh, Caucasian ladies all dressed in older clothing, like uh, bonnets. Anyways, for some reason, I uh, went up, uh, I wanted to go shake their hand, so I went and shook their hand, and and uh, the one lady, I must have shook about four or five, and then the one lady held my hand, just held it, wouldn't let it go, and she just held it, and she said, uh, we pray for you people every day was what she said. And that just totally touched me. You know, like, here these people don't even know, and they're Caucasian to boot, <laughs> you know. Here they're praying for us, indigenous Indian residential school survivors, you know. Praying for us, you know, like, that just, that was another very memorable experience for me. Also, too, in regards to uh, why it's important is, uh, well, because, uh, you know, like, the, the wrongs need, needs to be righted. Yeah, the wrongs need to be righted, to made right, somehow, some way. And, yeah, because, um, well, that's just the way, you know, the, that's the way that I think should happen you know I don't know about other people whether they think that way or not but you know that's the way I think about it you know like to make amends you know to make amends uh, somehow some way not give us all our land back <laughs> which that is very impossible to do you know but maybe give us some land back you know also too in regards to uh, why it's important is uh, because as indigenous people, we have such high rates of everything because of this colonization process. And the numbers need to go down in all aspects like incarcerations, uh, children in care, you know, um, uh, numbers such as high rates of deaths and suicides, you know, like all those should be going down, should go down, you know. Uh, that's when we know that reconciliation is actually happening. But right now it's not really happening, you know, like really, really happening. Yeah, that's, uh, that's why it's so important. And it leads into this, um, this whole climate change deal as well. It, it all intertwines, you know, with these uh, numbers going down and and then these protests that are taking place over these pipelines you know on indigenous territories and stuff you know like like it's like there's still that clashing of you know communities and governments you know and indigenous peoples are trying to save this planet save mother earth and 
it's not that's not the way the mentality of these governments they're thinking of progress you know and whatnot you know so there needs to be a, a different mindset taking place but yeah there still needs to be forgiveness in some form or another but in like to me my um, experience with forgiveness is you can't forgive somebody for just the sake of forgiving them right you know um, you gotta forgive from the heart you know and and I think that's where um, this forgiveness that that would be the basis from uh, if this reconciliation is coming from the heart you know but if it's not coming from the heart then it's not going to happen so it all depends like say if it's coming from an indigenous perspective well like say for me like uh, i could forgive you know the wrongs that has been done to me and i have forgiven you know people and you know i have forgiven them from my heart but because i've had to do the the hard work that i had to get to forgiveness, you know. Um, I've seen so many people um, kind of like with forgiveness, um, they say, oh, I forgive you for doing this to me. But they didn't do the work that is required to get to that, you know. And I have done the work to, 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 to actually really totally forgive somebody from their heart because I did all that healing work all these years, the 14 years that I spent with a therapist, you know, that's a lot of work that I did. And I spent four years with a psychologist, uh, with a doctorate degree. I spent four years with that person, you know, so I've done a lot of work, you know, and uh, um, I remember being asked at this one um, uh, healing circle, actually it was the very first healing circle that was ever brought, uh, was ever uh, done. And that was in Beardies at, at the hall. We had, a, we had a healing circle there in regards to me and my dad because I had uh, taken my dad to court for what he had done to me. Yes, I did. I took my dad to court and I took this other man to court that had, um, that had uh, violently raped me. I took him to court, I took my own dad to court, and but I couldn't take that priest to court because he was gone, you know, passed away. So I remember that healing circle with my with my father and was the community in, in Beardies, like my aunties, my uncles were there. Um, members of the, the community were there, the police was there, the parole board was there. You know, like uh, all these people were there and they all got a chance to talk, eh, you know. And uh, the and it came down, down to me, that parole board man asked me, so uh, he asked me, so Marianne, do you think that um, you can forgive your dad for what he did to you? And uh, I, uh, it was a very... <laughs> in front of everybody, in front of my dad, my aunties, my uncles. It was like I was just put on a spot, eh, you know, and I just said, uh, I can forgive him now. I said, but before I couldn't. Yeah, we do need to forgive, but on the other side of the fence, they have to do their part as well. You know, like the governments, like, 
you know, like, they need to quit, you know, fighting against indigenous people all the time with these tra with these pipelines and all that, you know? And uh, quit letting people get away with murder. You know, like this Colton Boucher situation. You know, like, I was doing fine with this reconciliation. I thought I was on a, on a good path of reconciliation. I was feeling it inside, you know. I was feeling this hope. And then this thing went and happened, and I'm like, it, it stopped me in my tracks. And it, yeah, and it made me think about, well, now what? What do I do now? And I think I've been kind of there since. You know, I haven't been able to keep moving forward with reconciliation. So there's um, different stuff going on all the time. Like, say, the Office of the Treaty Commissioner is doing quite a bit. You know, like I would say, get in, get more involved. You know, when you hear anything about TRC, get involved, and uh, it'll change you. It'll change your life, and you look at things in a much broader text. You know. To me, the progress of reconciliation since the TRC closed is. Uh, it's, it's still being carried out, you know, like we still have these walks for reconciliation, you know, rock your roots in the summer. And we have these other uh, committees, like uh, we had uh, the city of Saskatoon really involved in any TRC. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's a movement, you know. Um, but uh, like, we're just, to me, we're at a point where we're just scratching the surface right now. I think it has to do with the people that, uh, you know, like uh, say, yeah, they're gung-ho about reconciliation, you know, and they'll go into it for a little while, but then they'll just kind of forget about it and leave it be, you know, and then, you know, and then, then what, you know, then so, but then there's some that still keep going, you know, with it, you know, with, with this theme of reconciliation, they keep, you know, carrying on, so, like I think that's the problem with what we're like, what we're dealing with, you know, is uh, um, some of it are only half into it, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. They're not really, you know, in, into it, into it as much as, you know. But but we need more people to get into it more, you know, more and more, and you know, like say even tackle one calls to action, just one. In regards to the. Uh, indigenous communities taking control of their child welfare services. There are some that are really taking control, uh, like Kawasis, you know, yes. is really making big steps, you know, towards uh, having their own uh, child and family services in their community, right? And you know, those uh, foster families, you know, like um, there needs to be more training on reserves to have more foster families to, uh, so that children don't leave the community, you know, they get to, to stay in the community, you know. They need emergency homes and they also need foster families, you know, they need to train, you know. So that's the dilemma of these child and welfare services. That's what I see because I worked, you know, there and saw the needs. Well, I, like I said, I, I'm not ashamed of anything, you know, because it wasn't my shame anyway, you know. People need to know you know, um, that this really, really happened. You know, really happened with, you know, how um, how all this uh, 
colonization has affected me and my family. I mean, you know, from generation to generation, you know, that it's up to the person um, whether they want to carry on, you know, uh, or put a stop to the abuse. You know, that uh, it's our responsibility to stop it, you know, from continuing. And I think that's where um, another thing about reconciliation is, um, yeah, all this stuff is rooted in colonization, but it's up to the individual to make the changes for themselves, not to use the past to their, uh, you know, like to, to not use it in a negative manner, but to, to try to do it in a positive way, you know. Uh, it takes a lot of hard work to, to heal, but, but it is possible. And to be able to lead better lives, you know. You know, since we've talked to Marianne, I've been thinking about her stories and her experiences a lot. They've really sat on my heart. You know, the abuse and the harm she experienced, how she found people to trust, the work she has done to heal herself and forgive those who have harmed her, how she was impacted by the Colton Bushi case, like how it like stopped her reconciliation journey for a bit and her challenge to non-Indigenous people to do the work, to carry the weight of reconciliation. I really appreciated how she opened up to us. So that's been sitting on my heart. Ben, what stood out to you? Right. Yeah, I, I, her story was very, very, very powerful for me, right? Um, I think stories have a way of motivating people and moving people to action. But in, kind of inside her story, though, I found some very interesting takeaways for me because I like to think about outcomes sometimes. So as a strategist, that's what I do in my work. I think about outcomes, right? And what I liked about what she had to offer was, was tangible outcomes for reconciliation. So I think some of the questions that maybe settler perspectives or settlers ask is how do we know reconciliation finished or what does that look like or what do we do or if an organization is working on a, a reconciliation strategy well, how does that take shape what how do we know when it's finished right or that we've succeeded or met our goal but I loved how she attached like um uh, what what were the rates here sorry oh right 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 when the numbers of, I love how she attached the numbers of Indigenous people in prison, if those numbers are going down, if the number of people in the, Indigenous people in the foster system, if that number is going down, when the rates of suicide goes down, you know, then we know that reconciliation is happening and then it's working. And these are some really great tangible numbers that we can be looking at to say, hey, reconciliation is working in our country. And right now, it doesn't feel like those numbers are going down. So obviously, there's more work that needs to be done to, to get some of these really great tangible outcomes from the reconciliation process yeah it gives us places to learn and advocate and educate in yes mm, it was so good i would like to thank matthew hildebrand for editing this episode ben Bourne for hosting with me marianne napope for having the conversation with us and mennonite church saskatchewan for providing funding for this project subscribe to our podcast to hear more conversations on reconciliation 
This has been Reconcile, Everyday Conversations, a podcast for Mennonite Central Committee, Saskatchewan. Thank you for listening.